0: The real learning, yeah, in fact, does occur when you're sort of out there on your own and you don't have the support of mentors or instructors. And it is a practice, right? And so sometimes it feels like the more I know, the less I understand kind of situation. And, you know, there's just so much that we're given. There's so many tools in that toolbox. And I think it can be sometimes overwhelming for students that are getting ready to graduate because they've learned quite a broad range of theories and concepts and Ways of practicing the medicine and then it 's kind of trying to figure out where do I resonate the most? Where do I land within that plethora of ways that this medicine can be practiced
1: i 'm Michael Max, and this is geological part of being a practitioner is what you do the other part is who you are there's the portion that has to do with knowledge and then that which is rooted in presence and being it's not a matter of knowing what to do, it's also about how we connect and do our work. Your diagnosis could be spot on, the points needled with skill, but if you're judging your patients for their habits, beliefs, or lifestyle, then you have some work to do. And that work has little to do with skill or knowledge. Medicine is serious business, serious enough that it helps to bring a light heart to the endeavor a capacity to listen to what's being talked around an empathy developed well enough that it's possible to sing our patient's song back to them in a way that they say, that's right. And this is important without getting caught in the quicksand of emotion that they are experiencing. We are hard on ourselves and we need to be properly accountable. But too often I hear, and I've said it myself. Many more times than is helpful, that I don't know anything, that I'm just at the beginning. I only this, I only that. It's easy to look at someone with 15 years in the boat and think I'm an idiot compared to them, but that is the wrong comparison. It's more helpful to compare yourself with yourself from six or 12 months ago. Yeah, we all make mistakes, at least if you're pushing the edges of your ability and understanding. I often hear my patients talking about taking baby steps. Here's the thing. Baby steps are not small to a baby. They are utterly transformative. Learning to stand up not only is a lesson that we learn over and over again in this life, it almost always will have you feeling wobbly in the beginning as you redefine your relationship to the gravity of habit and capacity. It's helpful. To recognize limits, but not be constrained by them, and not discount our steps taken along the way. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs. Is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AcuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website To take advantage of all the special offers, our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how.
2: Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Maywei.com to find the perfect Ponsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust Meiwei Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine.
1: I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to janeapp switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code GEOLOGICAL at the time of sign-up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. How to go from being a student to being a practitioner. This, for many, is a dark passage, as what made us good as a student might not be so helpful as we apprentice ourselves to the work and begin to learn from our patients and experience without the scaffolding of teachers, supervisors, and colleagues who are just an earshot away. That test for which we prepared so hard, some of it will be useful, much of it not. Still, it's a gate. Through which we all must pass. In this conversation with Kristen Lamberton, we discuss the process of learning, of test preparation, and beyond that, leaving the world of student and entering that of the practitioner. Let's get into this. Kristen Lamberton, welcome to Geological. Thank you so
0: much. It's a quite an honor to be here.
1: Honor to be here. I've heard people say that before, but I don't quite get it. Like, what's the honor in being here on a, on a podcast?
0: I've been listening to you for many years now, since I was in school. And so getting to talk to you is a little bit like meeting a rock star. <laughs> From that sense, yeah, it's quite a pleasure.
1: Well, you know, the rock stars on the podcast are the people who come on like you To share something of what you know.
0: That's very kind.
1: I mean, that's what makes the podcast a podcast. Absolutely. Well, it's
0: wonderful to be here and to finally get a chance to meet you.
1: Well, I'm delighted that you're here. We're going to be talking about something near and dear to my heart, learning Chinese medicine. Yes. That's a tall order.
0: It is. It is. It is. It's not an easy subject matter. You're learning a whole new language in in addition to all the new theories and concepts. And you're really trying to squeeze in, I think, what originally was a 10-year apprenticeship into three or four years of study. And that's a lot of ground to cover, especially if you're doing both points
1: as well as herbs. I can't even imagine what an apprenticeship might have actually been like. We use that term a lot in And of course, over the years, that's how it was taught. But apprenticeship is, it's like such a quirky thing. You're going to learn from your teacher and all whatever quirky, weird ways they have of working. You won't necessarily learn the whole of it. Right. With our modern systems, learn enough to like pass a test and, and be able to converse with each other and then be able to practice in an effective fashion. That's its like a whole different mindset, I think. It's really rather new when you think about it, like schools for Chinese medicine. Yeah. That's a modern thing.
0: It is. And our Western approach of kind of how quickly and compacted can we do this <laughs> to get people out there and you know start practicing the medicine. And so I think I'm sort of born out of necessity in that way. But I think in a lot of ways, it does leave this space of being far from ideal because you graduate and you think, okay, now what?
1: <laughs> Where do I go from here? So Is that actually a problem or is that just endemic to the situation that we find ourselves in, right? We're looking to help people with their well-being. We're looking to connect with people in really profound ways. And the idea that we can in three, four, maybe five years learn to be really good at this, I think it might even be a ridiculous thing to consider. because. So much of the learning comes after we're out of school. So much of the learning occurs when we're in clinic, we're by ourselves, we don't have our colleagues, we don't have our notes, our teachers aren't there to back us up. We're like, now what? Absolutely. It's a whole different kind of learning. So I'd love to get your thoughts on how you make that transition.
0: Yeah, I mean, what is it they say? Western medicine is difficult to learn, easy to practice, and Chinese medicine is easy to learn, difficult to practice, right? So the real learning, yeah, in fact, does occur when you're sort of out there on your own, and you don't have the support of mentors or instructors. And it is a practice, right? And so sometimes it feels like the more I know, the less I understand kind of situation. And, you know, there's just so much that we're given. There's so many tools in that toolbox. And I think it can be sometimes overwhelming for students that are getting ready to graduate, because they've learned quite a broad range of theories and concepts and ways of practicing the medicine. And then it's kind of trying to figure out where do I resonate the most? Yeah, Where do I land within that plethora of ways that this medicine can be practiced? And I think that's one of the things that I like to help students with is sort of like, how do you bridge that gap? How do you hone in on what your individual unique strengths and gifts are? What do you bring to the table? Which may be something like, I know how to hold space for people. I know how to make them feel comfortable just by sitting with them. It might be just that. And that's enough. We have to always tell ourselves that you are enough exactly as you are. And when you try to practice in a way that's inauthentic to who you are, that's, in my opinion, where you run into trouble. So Really trying to help students to maximize their own strengths, identify what those strengths are, and then how they can apply within what they've learned through the scope of the medicine.
1: It seems to me that that then means you have to be able to discern and sort of like whittle away what actually doesn't fit for you. I can remember learning uh, some Japanese techniques when I was in school, and they included the little rice grain mocks, of which I love to get and I hate to do. I hate it. (laughs) I just don't like doing it. It just doesn't fit with who I am. And I keep thinking I should be able to do this. And it's really helpful for people. And, you know, it's part of a tradition. And if I was a better practitioner, I'd really learn to roll those rice grains and get it down. And there's just a part of my personality that doesn't do it.
0: Right. And honoring that and respecting that about yourself and really focusing on what, what it is that are the strengths that you do bring to the table and where you want to spend your time and effort because that's where you'll be benefiting your patients the most and growing also as a practitioner um, by focusing because you know it's we're given certain gifts that we're born with but that doesn't mean that we don't have to work on those and nurture those and water those and just like we would an herb or a plant and then it becomes something that has its own momentum. And feels good to you because it resonates with who you are. And I think I know for myself, practicing the medicine, the times that I've run into trouble are always times where I'm trying to do something that I've been told oh, I, or I think, yeah, this is good. I really should do this. But I have an internal nervousness about it or discomfort. And then either it doesn't work or maybe the patient comes back and says, hey, you know, I feel worse now.
1: <laughs> well, that feeling worse now is really, really helpful feedback.
0: Right. Yeah. And it's in those things that we quote unquote do wrong, those mistakes that we make, those steps away from our North Star where we really discover who we are and we really learn about ourselves and about our, about the medicine. Right. So it's I tell the students that when they take an exam, the questions you get wrong are the ones that are going to teach you the most because you're going to focus on those and you're going to want to understand why you answered that question wrong versus questions you answered right, you may have guessed on. You didn't know those questions, but you just happened to guess correctly, and then you think you know it, but you really don't. So.
1: so it kind of comes down, in a sense, to how do we know what we know? And I think this is so often, the, at least for me in my practice, there's this kind of balance. I'm going to say there's a tension. It's not just a balance, it's a tension mm-hmm. between what I know in the incredible uncertainty that I face every single day when I go into clinic, right? There's all the stuff in my head, and there's all the experience I've got. There's all the things I've talked about with guests on the podcast that float around in my mind as well. I feel so fortunate to um, have been exposed to so many different ways of thinking about medicine. Right. And then there's that moment well, actually, what is happening in front of me right now?
0: Yeah. And that's the piece that I don't think enough people talk about because i have that same experience i say oh i have six patients today and oh gosh do i really know what i'm doing after 6 years of practice which is still very you know relatively young but i think that that's a good thing and that's what i try to encourage people and students you know as they go when they say well i don't understand this and i say good <laughs> because it takes a lifetime to understand it and if you're standing in front of me now after two years of Chinese medicine school saying, I get this, I got this, then I'm worried about you. (laughs) Mm. Because humility to me is really important. And it allows us, as you said, to come into clinic, take a breath and see what is standing in front of me. Not what's crowded up in my head, but what's actually in front of me. And what is that person trying to convey or say
1: well, I don't know if we need to have humility. I think humility is given to us all the time. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Every time where it's like, I've got this. Oh, I know what this is. Watch this. Right? I've seen this before. I can help this. No problem. Ooh, wait a minute. Uh huh. What the heck's going on here? You know, and it's one thing for us to be sitting here on a nice day, having a conversation about it. It's another thing to be in clinic at the moment when like, oh, shit. Now what? And again, there's this tension between what we know, and you got to know a lot of stuff to do this work,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and how you handle those moments of, I'm not sure. You were talking earlier about having a capacity to just sit with somebody. Right. I find sometimes that is, at least for me, at this stage in my practice, often so helpful where it's like, oh my goodness, there's a lot going on can I just calm myself down for a moment mm-hmm. and see if that will help the patient to calm down a little moment? Exactly. And then we can kind of get on track.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And then you can allow the condition, the pattern to reveal itself to you. I think that was Sharon Weisenbaum's uh, teachings. You know, it's just, we have a tendency to listen to the patient talk and right away we want to say, oh, it's this and it's that and it's this and I think it's that. We lose our presence and we lose what the patient's really saying, or they may be saying something, but there might be something underlying that is really what they want to say. But if we're not paying enough attention, we don't get to, quote unquote, hear that. And I think ultimately, too, it's just, again, trusting who we are as individuals and what we bring to the table. And as Jeffrey Ewan teaches, the moment the patient walks into the room and you put your hand on their pulse, the healing begins. Way before the needles even come out. And he used to say, too, what would you do if you walked into your clinic one day and noticed all the acupuncture needles? You didn't order enough acupuncture needles and they're all gone. Now, what do you do? (laughs) Do you have the capacity to treat the patient without your tool of acupuncture needles? Because that's the true, that would be the true healing, right?
1: Well, that begs the question of so just what is the tool? And it begs the question, it's a great question. So just what is acupuncture doing anyway?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. What am I bringing with my uniqueness that is part of the healing process here, right?
1: Yes. I think that's a great question. And I also, right, this is going to get into touchy territory here, because we do bring ourselves and we do bring our uniqueness. And yet, my suspicion at this point is it has nothing to do with us. It's so easy to put ourselves in it and go, look, I fixed their back pain. And yes, we have to bring ourselves there. And yes, there's an aspect of us that we have to cultivate and we have to know things and we have to be able to, I'm using air quotes here, do something. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it's not about us at all.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. It's just guiding the, other, the, the patient's own body into a state of remembering what healing is like. Mm. And to quote Dr. Jeffrey Ewan again, he says, the only thing that we cure is ham. When we prepare ham to cook it, we cure it, right? (laughs) And again, to me, that brings me back to the idea of humility in the sense of just being centered and grounded and recognizing that, yeah, I'm not here to fix anybody. And if the patient believes that I'm here to fix them, then they're not going to get better because they're expecting me to do all the work.
4: Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical, and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the Sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Qi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at Sturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you.
1: Mm, Again, we're getting into really tricky territory here because people are coming to us to feel different and feel better, right? The agreement that we have, I was gonna say in our society, but maybe throughout time, doctors and patients, is that you're coming to get something. Mm -hmm. And part of the deal is you're gonna feel different, ideally better after our interaction and so there's that. How do we deal with that? Because that pressure is there. That There's a tacit agreement Absolutely. that when you go to the doctor and you pay him some money and you spend your time as well and you give them your trust, that you're going to get something back. That's part of the deal, isn't it? Yeah.
0: And I think I, maybe what I'm trying to say is that both patient and practitioner give their 50%. So I can give patient a treatment. They can feel better. But if I give them suggestions about, you know, how to sort of clean up their diet or add more exercise or don't exercise as much. And they go home and they just say, whatever. Yeah, I'm just gonna do whatever I want and I'll go back to Kristen a week from now and feel great in the table and then just carry on with my life. That's what I mean by they're not gonna see necessarily resolution or complete resolution if they don't bring their part to the table and take sort of a sense of responsibility for their own health and well being.
1: But what if they don't want
0: to? Well, that's a good question. Yeah, and there are—I've heard practitioners. I think interviewed even here on your podcast that say, you know, hey, if if the patient's not willing to do these things, I tell them then I tell them that they're not the patients for me. You know, I'm a little bit more gentle and subtle in my approach. But and I think it's teaching. Now, that's part of the teaching process. That's why I love that I bring those skills to my practice because really that is a lot of what we're doing is sort of teaching people how to. Feel well again.
1: Teaching them, helping them remember. Right. I feel like I'm always wanting to be a little cautious about blaming my patients when they don't do what they're supposed to do. It's like any other relationship. You know, I'm blaming my partner because they're not doing what I want them to do.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there's a great quote. True love is forgiving the other person for not being you. (laughs) Ha ha. Which I just love. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not at all blame or shame or anything or judgment. It's just helping to gently teach and remind and show and encourage, essentially. And then ultimately, it's the patient's decision where they take that.
1: I agree with you. And again, it's easy for us to talk about it in this moment like this. But at the same time, and I don't spend a lot of time on Facebook, but on occasion, I go and I take a look. And there's all kinds of practitioners complaining about how their patients aren't like doing the right thing and they're doing all this hard work for them and the patients just don't appreciate it and blah, 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 blah. Help me understand some things that we can do so that we can sit in that place of being that teacher, being that guide, maybe seeing paths that they could follow that would bring them less suffering and yet be able to accompany them in the path that they choose. I think it's really hard for us as practitioners sometimes to feel so hamstrung, our patients just being who they are. Have you got thoughts about that?
0: Yeah, I think a lot of practitioners say this, you know, it's about sort of meeting the patient where they're at. And I have plenty of patients that, for example, in my opinion, over-exercised, but they were unwilling Mm -hmm. to change that. That's how I manage my stress. That's not something. So we just talk about in the gentlest ways possible. You know, I had also patients that were marijuana smokers and had no desire to quit and had their reasons for that. And, you know, again, it's it's not about placing judgment. It's It's about just being present with them wherever they're at. And they might not be ready to make a change at all, ever. But just by showing, as I said, and talking to them gently, and then over time, if they can begin to make a connection, if it's a food thing, for example, if you've been telling them they need to eliminate wheat, and then one day they have an experience where they're like, "Oh wow, I ate that and I felt horrible." That's what you want because that's where they're not just pushing on trying to fight with their will; they're motivated to make a lasting change.
1: And sometimes it's more like, "Well, my chiropractor said I should stop eating wheat, and so I stopped eating wheat." And, and we're thinking, <laughs> I've been talking to you about this for the past three months. Right. Yeah, exactly. Oh, good. You finally heard. Oh, that's where you were able to hear it.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Lovely. Yeah. Smart chiropractor. (laughs)
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I think there's something about, I think we need to hear something, I don't know, five to eight times before we actually sinks in. And that's sort of the concept of spiral learning. It's connected with what I'm trying to do is this sort of idea that, Learning is like a spiral and there is forward movement, but there is this overlap that comes back again and again and again. And the first time you're passing through, you like, what is that? No way am I going to give up wheat. But the second time through, you go, oh, you know what? Some I can't remember who somebody said that to me. Maybe I should take that into
1: consideration. I saw something on Instagram.
0: <laughs> right. But each time you pass through again, each time you hear it, you're at a higher level of consciousness. In other words, you have grown and you have learned and you've been exposed. And because it's like someone tells you about a Mini Cooper and then next thing you know, you're seeing Mini Coopers everywhere, you know, and the same is true with eating gluten free, you know, somebody who's hears that from you is then going to be tuned into when the chiropractor says it or when the cousin says it or somebody else. And each time you're in a place of being able to be more able to integrate that information and then do something with it to really fully understand it. And I think that that's kind of how learning, any kind of learning works essentially.
1: I think you're right. And speaking about it this way, it's lovely and it's encouraging. I know that in my personal experience when I'm coming around on that spiral again, because if you're looking at it from the side, it's a spiral and it goes in a, it's got a trajectory, it goes in a direction. If you're looking at it from the top, it's just a circle. And you come around to it, it's like, oh, my God, this again? I thought I had this this sorted out. I really thought I had this sorted out. This is like the sixth time I thought I had it sorted out.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. But you just flip that and you look at, oh, I I had it sorted in this way. And then it sets you up for, oh, I see this other piece. Oh, that's how that works. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's one of the ways that Chinese medicine curriculum could be even could serve the students better by integrating within the courses some sort of connection so that when they are exposed to a concept in herbal medicine class, they then hear that again when they go to diagnosis, and then they hear that again when they go to differentiation of syndromes. And so that there's this sort of connection between, and so that they're beginning to bring all this information together instead of thinking of it as separate Pieces that they all each individually have to understand. And so when I teach herbal medicine, I'm constantly talking about diagnosis with my students. You know, I mean, you have to diagnose, right, to pick the right formula. But Mm -hmm. it's always something that we just, as teachers, I think, need to keep reinforcing and keep reinforcing in all these different ways. So, as I say, the students can see it from all sides of the spiral, if you will. Mm -hmm. And then it begins to make a, a greater pattern for them that can be applied in real-life situations, you know, when they're in college clinic, for example.
1: What do you think are some of the biggest challenges for students these days?
0: I think the subject matter itself. I think most students that come to Chinese medicine come already with a sort of a little bit of a basis of understanding and some education. I think it's more the how-to of studying that I think students struggle with, Mm. time management, but also we have a lot of students just sit with one subject for five hours a day and think that that's effective studying. And in fact, it's not. You're much better off taking small chunks, studying different subjects, different but related subjects in small chunks of time, for example. So I think that the concepts I think the students can learn, what I've noticed is kind of this idea of how to actually study in an effective way. It's not something that's taught. If you've been to undergraduate school already or any kind of educational system in the United States, there's not a lot of focus on that. And so I think students come and they're kind of like, oh my God, there's so much information and their studying habits are such that they spend a lot of time, but they get a very big effort and not a lot of outcome or success from that, if that makes sense.
1: Is it a big effort or is there just a lot of distraction?
0: Well, there could be that too. There could be that too. And I think there's a lot of techniques that I like to teach students on how to manage distraction. Because nowadays, I mean, cell phone ringing and texting and, and social media and all that, the younger generations are sort of in a way being trained to not have as long of an attention span. So there's a technique called the Pomodoro technique, which is involves using an egg timer. It's called Pomodoro because the guy who invented the technique I think it was Italian. And so he used a an egg timer that was shaped like a tomato and t- Pomodoro is the name of tomato in Italian. So you set it for 25 minutes and you turn off all digital distraction. You know, you put a little sign on your door. I'm not available. And just study for a 25 minute chunk on one subject. And then you take a five to 10 minute break and then come back and study something similar related, but maybe different. So maybe you were studying er gynecology herbs, and now you want to look at acupuncture points that are good for gynecological type Mm. situations, so that you're really integrating that information, because real life practice is not black and white. You're never going to see a textbook patient, right? You're always going to see complex cases.
1: On occasion, you will see a textbook patient. (laughs)
0: Sometimes you do, yeah.
1: Right. And it's really weird. It's like, is this really that textbook patient? Like, what am I missing here? Exactly. Exactly.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So these little, little tricks and techniques that students can do. And I talk to them too about you budget your money. Why not budget your time?
1: Mm. Do people actually budget their money?
0: That's a good question. Yeah. I mean, maybe not as many as I'm thinking, but at least you have to have a sense of how much money is coming in, how much money is going out and making sure you don't, you know, go in the negative too often. And the same is true with time. I've got 24 hours in the day. So I need to budget that I need to sleep. You know, you got to start with the essentials. I need to eat. I need to sleep. I need maybe to take care of kids. I have to walk the dog. You mind it. You subtract all of those time blocks and you see, this is what I have left. I've got only four hours. Gee, I thought I had eight, but really I only have four. How am I going to maximize those four hours?
1: God, I know it's terrifying. Right. I think of all the things that I put into the, I'll just do that in my extra time, which is just me being lazy and not wanting to look clearly at reality because there is no such thing as extra time. Right. I think you're right, Kristen. It's very helpful to have a clear-eyed look at, here's all the things I got to do. Here's the things I want to do. Oh, how much time do I actually have for that?
0: Exactly. Yeah. And I think I love to remind people that learning can be fun, right? So They always say, you know, when it comes to learning a language that children outdo adults in language acquisition, and that actually is not true. It's only true because children learn through play, and we don't expect children for at least the first two years of life to produce any language at all. All they have to do is listen, observe, and play. And then they start to mimic sounds, you know, with their ba-ba-ba-boo-boo-boo, and they're just practicing. And as adults, we walk into a Spanish class and expect to be speaking Spanish on day one. And we do it by sort of rote learning, memorization and writing things down in a book and looking at the board. And it's not a lot of fun. And so for that reason, children outperform adults. So I think it's really important for teachers and for students themselves to bring an element of fun. And there are Tons of great digital tools out there that people can use that are free. You can create your own little quizzes and games, and you're interacting with your phone anyway. So, why not use that time to, instead of just scrolling through Instagram, to be using an app that's going to help you in a fun way to study for your upcoming exam or whatever class that you have? And so, I think that's a key thing. And I think You know, I've been through my fair share of classes where this teacher just opens the textbook and reads from the textbook. And I think, well, gee, we are graduate students. We do know how to read. Should be. (laughs) And you reading it, I hate to say it, but it just doesn't make it any more understandable to me from when I read it by myself. And so really moving away from that sort of didactic authoritarian style of teaching to much more engaging, interactive type activities, which are real life based in addition. So essentially preparing students for their practice.
1: So are you suggesting that teachers that open up the book and read the book are not effectively teaching? That that maybe it would be better if students read the book, and now let's have a discussion. By the way, we expect you to be prepared. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying.
0: Yeah, like all that reading and sort of read, memorize, understand, let the students do that at home. They're perfectly capable of doing that. And then come to class and evaluate and analyze and create and do those higher order level of thinking that allows them to take that information and apply it. Because to me, it's a waste of time for students to be doing those sort of lower order type things, as, as I mentioned, of just, okay, take five minutes and read, or I'm going to read to you, or memorize this. And it's much more beneficial for students to be able to have the opportunity to, like I said, like I said, with a child learning mm. language and just playing around with the sounds to just play around with it, because that's the time to do it when you're in school. And then feel free to make mistakes and feel free to say things that aren't correct, because that's the correct environment.
1: Oh, my God, we hold ourselves to such a standard. And we hold ourselves as students to such a standard, like, oh my God, can you believe the question she asked? She's so stupid.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You hear this, all oh, the people are afraid to speak up. Oh my God, I'm going to look dumb in front of my colleagues.
3: Right, right.
1: So I hear you about the play and I'm totally with you because I find that playfulness is helpful in almost all aspects of life. Absolutely. Especially because you let yourself off the damn hook. Uh, absolutely. But we can be pretty unsupportive and pretty mean with each other. You look at our profession. There's no one that throws more shade on acupuncturists than other acupuncturists. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: I want to speak to this elephant in the room because I think it's there and it really can impede learning. Absolutely. Because if we can't bring our playful self and if we can't all have a a good wholehearted laugh at like, yeah, okay, I really had that one wrong, Mm -hmm. instead of constantly judging and assigning status and they're smart and they're stupid and blah, 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 what are your thoughts about that? I mean, how do we get that kind of darker aspect of of being human beings out of the way? Because that really gets in the way of play.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, that's a tough one. And I agree with you. I have seen that as well. Certain people thinking, oh, well, I studied here or there, and therefore I know more, or I studied this technique. And ultimately, you know, it just pulls away from the richness of the practice. We all have something to bring to the table. And I think To me, you know, I work on this with myself of just being able to be upfront with people and say, wow, ouch, that's painful. (laughs) That, That didn't feel so good.
1: Yeah, call it out.
0: Yeah, because I think for me personally, judgment of self tends to be the harshest, but I do see and judging self impacts learning in the same way that, you know, when other people are judging. But there needs to be a space for good intellectual curiosity and conversation within our profession. Mm -hmm. And there are so many different schools and ways of doing things that there should not be this sort of, well, this is better than that approach. The answer to how to manage, that's a tough one.
1: In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jing well points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico Needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico Needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. I think recognizing it first of all. right? And I'm totally with you on that aspect of play because When we've given ourselves permission to be explorative and to be as happy to get a no as a a yes to any inquiry, like, how does that thing work? Well, I don't know. Let's find out. Ooh, there's a way it doesn't work, right? Like, watch any child learning to walk. Oh, there's a way not to stand up and (laughs) funk, right? They fall over. You know, we often hear this thing about, well, I'm just taking baby steps. It's like, yeah, okay. Baby steps aren't small to a baby. Right, exactly. Right, they're transformative. And certainly in learning the thought processes of Chinese medicine and how to utilize it, there's a lot of getting it wrong. There is, in the process of learning. There is. And so
0: there's a real need for just self compassion Mm -hmm. and for, you know, sort of bringing yourself sort of to that higher level of consciousness where you're just observing. And the Tao was saying, "Of we know not what is good and what is bad. And I had a patient the other day walk into the office just fine and walk out because she'd been laying on her back. She had back problems. She didn't tell me that lying on her back was not good for her and got up and thought and said, oh, gosh, I forgot to tell you, I, I you know, lying on my back makes my back worse. <laughs> and so I put some ear tags in her before she left and, and she left and I thought about that all day and called her at At the end of the day to check in on her. And she said, you know what, Kristen, my back feels better than it ever has. She said, I left your office and then I just realized my back wasn't hurting anymore. So here I thought it was this disastrous treatment Mm. and actually it turned out to be just fine, right? So I think always allowing room for that aspect as well.
1: Yes. You're touching on something very near and dear to my heart. It's like been a central part of my inquiry with medicine, past number of years, I don't know how many, because I feel like I deal with it all the time. And that's uncertainty.
3: Yeah,
1: That someone comes in and we do the best we can for them, how does it actually go? Well, I mean, who knows? And we can't know until they've had some time to digest that and live their way into a different balance. And sometimes people go away and they never come back. We don't know if we helped them or didn't. Right. And that uncertainty piece, I think, is challenging. Very. Because we so much want to know. Absolutely.
0: And again, but just creating that space for maybe that patient didn't come back because they're 100% better. And I've had that experience too. You know, I treated somebody, I think, once or twice for knee pain. And then she canceled her third appointment and I didn't see her. So I called her. I said, what's going, you know, just checking in on you. And she said, oh, well, I don't need to come back because my knee's better. So, and you know, it was the last thing I was expecting to hear because of my personality, which tends to just kind of beat myself up and and have that, you know, sort of imposter syndrome type thing going on. A friend of mine used to say, you know, we get into the work we do to do our own work. Mm -hmm. And so this opportunity to, for me, in my case, to really work on being compassionate with myself.
1: Well, there is this archetype of the wounded healer. And it shows up again and again and again through all kinds of cultures and mythologies and stories. It's a real thing. Yeah, we get into the work in part to do our work. And I suspect in part because of whatever trouble and travail we've been through, it also gives us a kind of a perspective or maybe a kind of compassion or a drive to do something about that. Often to help ourselves, at the same time we can often help other people. It gets a little tricky there. Like, am I doing this for them or am I doing this for me?
0: Or are you doing it for both at the same time? Both of those things exist simultaneously. And I think, because, you know, we live in a very dualistic Western culture of it's either this or that. But there are a lot of cultures, like in Cuba, they practice Santeria and Catholicism together. And they don't see any conflict in that. Whereas, you know, your sort of devout Catholic in our culture would probably think, how can that be? Have this other spirituality and Catholicism, you know. And so really just holding that space for can things occur together simultaneously? And when it comes to uncertainty, instead of resisting, because what we resist often tends to to persist or grow, embracing the sense of what if uncertainty was how it's always going to be? It's kind of when the whole pandemic thing started. I heard a spiritual teacher talking about. The only way we can move on is just by assuming this is how it's always going to be. So how can I be okay with how it's always going to be? How can I find a way to find peace within that? And it's not easy. It's easier said than done, right? But it is that practice of, okay, this is how this is. How can I find a a, a way to be okay with it?
1: So I feel like we are Circling around a theme here of that there's there's more to practicing medicine than practicing medicine. Absolutely. And I know that, that some of the work that you do is, is helping people prepare, moving from student to being practitioner. What are some other things that people should be prepared to learn or to do to actually have a medical practice beyond learning the medicine?
0: Oh, yeah. Great question. I think one of the things that I think is really important for people to determine is how they want to practice so do they see themselves running their own practice or do they see themselves as part of a group practice and so really exposing themselves to both types of practices i think are really important to really maybe follow somebody around in a group practice versus a single practice so that's that's important because that's going to determine if you join a group practice where you can just basically walk in the door and they take a percentage of your income then you don't have to worry so much about the business aspect. And that might be a good choice for you if business is not your thing or you don't have any experience in it. But let's say you have a business background. You used to run your own business and you feel pretty confident about your ability to practice the medicine on your own and you want to open your own practice, then that's great. But again, that aspect of it, the business aspect, I think a lot of people overlook and you know, finding what would be right for you within that. And I think a lot of students aren't prepared for the fact that it takes time to build a practice and you come out of school with quite a bit of debt. And the reality is it takes three to five years to really get to a point where you're not having to bust your butt trying to get patients and it's sort of self-generating. So can you support yourself for that period of time? Or are you going to need to work part-time somewhere else while you're doing that? So those are the types of things I think that are important for people to start thinking about. And there's desirable places to practice because they're beautiful areas. I know I come from, I was in, lived in Asheville for 20 years and students graduate there and think, oh, you know, I'll keep practicing in Asheville. Well, if you throw a stone in Asheville, you're going to hit either an acupuncturist or a massage therapist. So, hey, maybe that's not a good choice. Yes. Maybe you want to live in Asheville, but you know, why don't you take an hour drive and go into the countryside a little bit and establish a practice there. A friend of mine did that in Shelby, North Carolina, and has a thriving practice there. So, yeah, these are the things that I think in acupuncture school, it varies, I would imagine, but they don't go into as much in depth, being able to prepare from a business standpoint.
1: Yeah, well, the business piece, I mean, it's interesting. A lot of us have some issues with business or money, often bad opinions about it. Business is evil. Money's a bad thing. And I mean, I know I've had my share of obstacles that I've put in my path because of my attitudes toward finances um, or attitudes toward business for that matter, which is weird because I come from a family of small business people. And they were all great people, right? It's, you know, it's not like I grew up around people that were swindlers or anything. They were good, honest, small business people. I somehow got it in my head in the late 60s, early 70s that, you know, well, business is a bad thing, you
3: know. Right.
1: Turns out small business can be a tremendous force for good. I mean, think about any businesses that you like to support in your local community that's run by a small business person. Maybe it's your favorite coffee shop or a restaurant you like or a clothing store that's got like all the cool stuff. Those are small businesses that are making the community a much more vibrant, interesting place to live. And so there's a lot of good that, that you can do when you run a business because you get to steer it. Yes. Right? It's like, there's something, I want to see the world be a certain way. Like, great, go build a business that does that. You can make the world a better place every single day and get paid for it.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And I think also the concept of money and healing practice and a lot of people feeling like that's a conflict of interest and that it's feeling uncomfortable collecting money for providing healing services and how much am I worth and am I really worth this much? I just graduated from school and really encouraging people, hey, do your research, analyze what the average cost is, find something that feels good to you. But this is part of it. You spent four years, lots of blood and chi and effort (laughs) in school to learn this medicine. And what you have a high value coming out of school because you have time and time is the greatest commodity. And the more seasoned practitioners who have booked schedules that are completely booked, they don't have as much time to spend with patients as you do. And so never forgetting that as a new practitioner, that that is worth an enormous amount. It's priceless, really.
1: Yes. So I remember having this conversation. It was with Steve Clavey. And he talks about this. Because, you know, often we'll come out of school, it's like, well, why would someone want to see me when that person over there, that got 20 years of experience. Well, exactly that. That person with 20 years of experience is seeing two or three or maybe four people in an hour. You're a new person. You can spend an hour with them. Some people really like spending time with their practitioner. Absolutely. So a new practitioner has the capacity, the interest, the need for patients. It's like there's a fit. There are people, if they want to spend more time with their practitioner, they're not going to see the person who's been at it for 20 years. Exactly. The residence is not there. And so for any of us at any stage of our practice, we will attract the patients. I know this sounds really woo-woo, and I'm not into woo-woo, but truly, we will attract the patients that are the right fit for us because we are the right fit for them.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And as young, I mean, new practitioners, you you know, you know, also have that drive, that thirst, that desire to do well, that motivation that if you've been practicing for so many years, there can start to be a repetition and you can start to get a little bit, bit bored and a little bit lazy. And
1: Really? Do you get bored and lazy 20 years into it? I mean,
0: yeah, I've heard some people talk about it depends on what you're doing, what you're treating. I I didn't have that experience. But I've heard people talk about that. And just kind of getting into a, a rut with certain just always using certain points or just not being as creative as when you first come out of school when everything's so fresh in your mind, because you've just learned it. And so that's a beautiful thing. And so I think there should be much more collaboration between new practitioners and seasoned practitioners, where they come together and they share and they basically mentor each other. Because I think that new practitioners have just as much to offer as seasoned people do. And people who went to acupuncture school 10 years ago, whatever, however many years ago, might not have learned some new contemporary formula or some new technique that's just now rise, arriving in the West or those sorts of things that new practitioners can, can teach.
1: I love the idea. How would we create something like that? Everyone's busy.
0: Everyone is busy, yeah.
1: Everyone's busy. I love the idea. I mean, I'm thinking about, I got, I got a bunch of friends that are psychotherapists. And new psychotherapists, they go into practice and then they have supervision with more experienced practitioners to help them through the cases that they're working on and travails that they're running into. There's that, and even psychotherapists that have like decades of experience, they will still often have a supervision group to kind of hone their edge. Yeah. Because there's always a leading edge that we're working on. Right. So they've got that built into their profession, but we don't have anything like that. What I hear you talking about rhymes a little bit with what they're doing. So have you got ideas about how we could make this part of what Chinese medicine is also about? How would we... Gets this kind of exchange going on.
0: Well, I think now much more in a digital, custom to digital types of ways of interacting. But so I think doing something, again, to make it as easy as possible for people, it doesn't have to be that frequent. It could be once a month or even less, you know, once a quarter. And just inviting people via Zoom or some platform like that and coming together and sharing in that way. I used when I was in school, I also followed around as a seasoned practitioner whenever I was in New Jersey, which is where my family's from. And she was very busy. So she didn't, you know, teach me that much, but I just got to watch her. I just got to observe, you know, she just allowed me to sort of follow her around. And she was, you know, she's in her 60s. And I mean, she had a thousand times more energy than I did. And I'd be exhausted at the end of the day. And she was onto her 20th patient of the day. So she was an incredible inspiration. So I think those practitioners that are more seasoned really being open to that sort of thing, and making it again, this idea of concept of fun and and exchange, and it doesn't have to be a seminar type situation, it can be sort of a more informal social gathering, where we're just sharing our thoughts and ideas and And I think it's really helpful for young, you know, new practitioners to hear from practitioners who've been working for a while that they still are uncertain and that sometimes and that they still have struggles and they still make mistakes. And that's really healthy and important that to talk about that kind of stuff.
1: Normalize what the practice actually is.
0: Exactly. I know when I was a young mother, you know, I think about what all the mistakes I made raising my son and then talking to other women as the years went on and we would joke about, oh, you think that's bad? Let me tell you what I did to my kids. You know, It was like, <laughs> oh, that made me feel so good. You know, Okay, I'm not crazy. I'm not a horrible mom or whatever. So I think that kind of sharing is really healing and helpful.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have to be on our game at the same time. How do I say it? I want to say let ourselves off the hook. There's certain hooks we need to be on for sure. Mm-hmm. But there's certain hooks we can let ourselves off of. Absolutely. Which is a very Chinese medicine way of saying both and, and like, look at the context and figure it out. Well, when do I do what? Great question. What's the context? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I remember a friend of mine telling me about a, uh, an experience that he had with an herb teacher of his. He was just starting to learn herbs. And uh, he was working with a practitioner who was not a, his teacher necessarily, but like following her around, and and he's like, oh, I just learned about dangwe. is a good herb. So he went to the teacher and said, you know, teacher, I hear dangwe's a good herb. Is it a good herb? And, uh, and the teacher, you know, this practitioner was like something, I can't remember exactly what she said, but she like really got his attention. It's like, well, for whom and for when <laughs> is it a good herb? For who and when? He <laughs> was a six foot four guy. He felt like, you know, three inches tall after that, but- I think that is such a pertinent and potent thing. And the beauty of the medicine that we practice, like what's the context (laughs) for whom, when? Is the timing right? Because something that's perfectly right today could be dead wrong a month from now.
0: Right, yeah. And I think it's hard for us educated in the West with a very sort of black and white, again, type of thinking to embrace the sort of, The gray area of Chinese medicine, and that there isn't, you know, I think students crave that. And I've experienced that as a Chinese medicine teacher. What's the answer? Okay, here's the presentation. What do I give this person? What's the correct formula? What's the correct point prescription? And not only does that vary from person to person, but it varies for that person depending on where they're at for a woman in their menstrual cycle, for example, or whatever else is going on in their lives. And so we want direct black and white answers from Chinese medicine, but we're asking for something that we can't necessarily have. Mm -hmm. And so really trying to open our mind to the fact that, okay, what is that area that space in between the black and white? And maybe somewhere there lies the answer.
1: It's tricky. I agree with you. We, especially in the West, there's a right, there's a wrong, especially with medicine. I mean, we got evidence-based, for God's sake. There's research studies, or there should be. We've got this whole idea in our mind that there's one right way to do it, and there is a right way to do it, usually more than one. I think at the same time, in the back of our minds, we're also remembering there's plenty of wrong ways to do it. Maybe instead of worrying about getting it right, we could just start with, how about I make sure I don't get it wrong?
0: Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
1: I I wonder if that would help. I'm thinking that myself. I'm going to take that into clinic this afternoon instead of trying to figure out what's right for this person. Can I like can I say three things to myself about what for sure are wrong and just see what shows up when I'm thinking it from that that direction.
0: Right. That would be a good practice. Yeah.
1: It might be. I'll let you know how it goes.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Yes, please do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think and two with right and wrong too. I think we're trained as practitioners to look for what's wrong with our patients. Mm, spot on. And what about going into clinic and saying, okay, for every patient, I'm going to find at least one thing that's right. Because if there was everything was wrong, the patient wouldn't be living. So there has to be something right, right. <laughs> and what is that right thing? And how can we use that as a point to work with as a strength that the patient has in order to do the things we want to accomplish in our treatment to help them on their journey to wellness?
1: You know, it's like raising kids in a way. Easy to catch them doing the wrong thing and point that out. But can you catch them doing something really awesome and point that out? Right. Like, oh, there's your superpower.
3: Exactly.
1: And I think patients often feel guilty anyway. It's like, I'm not feeling well and it's probably my own fault or things I'm doing. And they come in and complain about all the things that aren't working. I mean, that's part of the agreement. Sometimes I think exactly what you were just saying. If I can find something about them that's right or working well or a strength and remind them bring it to their attention that they have this because often they overlook it it's like oh yeah that it's like yeah no exactly that
0: it reinforces it it's like in a couple between a you know an in par- intimate partnership mm. if you're constantly telling the person what they're doing wrong that's very demotivating for them but if you say you know i love it when you say this particular thing or when i wake up in the morning and the coffee's ready i just love that then they're so motivated to continue to do that for you, as opposed to sticking their heels in the ground and being like, when we're criticizing and saying, well, then, you know, I'm just forget about it. So I think that that's a really good way to, again, as you said, remind the patients, but then also to motivate them. Oh, right. Okay. So I forgot, or I, I didn't see that as a strength, or I forgot that I have that as a strength.
1: And I can use that. I can do
0: something with that.
1: Well, we do that with our medicine, don't we? I mean, humans are mostly closed systems, semi-permeable, let's say. And so often when I think about working with people and I want to help them heal something that's not working well, I'll take the thing that's working well and use that to help the part that's not working well. We do that with acupuncture. We do that with herbs. We can do it with food therapy. It's partly how our medicine works. We take what's strong and move it to the place where they're weak. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. That's, again, the concept with When working with students, again, to just really help them identify what their strengths are and build off of those to be able to best learn the medicine in a way that resonates with them and that is the most effective for them.
1: Any other advice that you have for new practitioners when they're starting out in their leaky boats?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think just... Really trusting themselves, trusting what they know. They've gone through a process. They've studied for a long time. They've taken very rigorous board exams. They're there for a reason, and they know more than they think they know.
1: Mm, that's a fun voyage of discovery to finding out what you know that you don't know. You know, right, right. <laughs> now you help people with this too. You've got a website. You do some coaching. Why don't you just tell us quickly how people would be able to find you and find out more about what you're doing.
0: Absolutely. So my business is Triple Spiral Learning. So website is triple com. You can also find me on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and I provide academic coaching is what I'm basically calling it. So it's not really teaching the subject matter, although we do get into subject matter concepts. It's more about just coaching them through the process of learning. Again, helping them can things when they're ready to make together that transition simultaneously? from student to practitioner and students prepare for the board exams helping students to better understand more difficult concepts that don't feel like they are really grasping in school, and providing accountability for them. So a lot of students struggle with that, with all the distractions of the world. So someone who's sort of in their corner saying, hey, how's it going? Did you finish this? Did you work on that? How did that work out for you? What worked? What didn't work? How can we tweak that? And showing students different types of, as I mentioned, digital tools they can use, different ways to approach test-taking. They might not think of if they struggle with test anxiety. Again, budget their time, manage their time and um, study in the most effective way possible. So to be able to maximize the time that they do
1: have. Great. I'll make sure that's all on the show notes page as well. So if that's interesting to y'all, you can just pop over there. Kristen, thank you so much for your time today. I love the medicine like you do. And part of what I love about it so much is the learning that we're always invited into. So thanks so much for your time today.
0: Thank you so much, Michael. It's been really, as I said, a pleasure and an honor. I appreciate it.
1: That transition going from student to practitioner or practitioner to teacher or any transition for that matter, which has us moving along that spiral path of learning again and again, we're greeted with the question of, what am I doing? Curious thing about that question of what am I doing is that it can be used against ourselves with fear and constriction or as an invitation to lean in with a readiness to inquire and learn. You're the one who decides and it makes a difference too. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends.